This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. He's never been anything more than he's always been, which is, you know, a liar and a fraud and a fake. But does he really want us to end up shooting each other in the street over him? Well, I really don't think you can underestimate the degree by which he doesn't care. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. This week on Crossing Division, I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by my husband, Joe Lopez, who is also an attorney in Tacoma. And we are going to talk about election law challenges. In particular, the challenges being brought by Donald Trump to try to stop the election that he lost dreadfully from moving forward, trying to stop the election results from being certified. And we'll break it down for uh, the states that we know they're in high contention and then sort of try to speculate on what's going on and what does this mean for the future. So welcome, Joe. Thank you. Let's start with the first state that's going to certify. So uh, just to give you a little preview, we're going to talk about Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada, and Arizona. And they're all certifying soon. Well, let's be honest, all states are certifying soon. What the process is, is you have the election, then you give everyone time to count the votes. Votes are always counted for days after the election. And then uh, the states have different uh, dates on which they certify their election results. The first state that's coming up is certifying today. That is Georgia. Um, just let me break in. There, there's some confusion. I, I have seen two news flashes, one indicating that as of the time we're speaking, which is 11 a.m. on Friday, that Georgia has already certified its election. And then I saw an update that said that they were still in process but had not finished certification. But certainly within moments, Georgia will have certified their election today. Okay. I don't know what the hangup is. I mean, it, it sounded like it was sort of a done deal. You know, the Secretary of State is uh, Brad Raffensperger, and you may have heard his name because apparently Senator Lindsey Graham had been calling him earlier in the week trying to get him to, I don't know what, do something, uh, maybe get rid of and throw out votes. Um, and luckily for all of us, uh, Brad Raffensperger is apparently takes his job very seriously as Secretary of State of Georgia and was appalled that he was being asked to do so. And he's a Republican. And he is a Republican. Uh, so in the New York Times this morning is a story about the Georgia certification saying, you know, look, this is really pretty simple. It's about counting. We have counted. We have now done a hand recount. Um, they did have some challenges in court. Uh, yesterday, Judge Grimberg, a Trump appointee on the federal court, rejected Trump's request to block the certification. Uh, so today, Georgia will certify Joe Biden as the winner after their hand recount. We thought it had happened. Maybe it's still happening, but it will happen today. And I think with that, the Trump campaign is realizing that Georgia is over. 
The next state we have coming up is Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, as you will know, is a big state, has 20 electoral votes itself. Um, it certifies on Monday, November 23rd. Uh, and what happens apparently is that the counties send their results to the Pennsylvania uh, Secretary of the Commonwealth. And then she certifies those election results. And it, it, it's unclear from the story that I read um, whether she does so immediately or whether she does so after some delay, although the story didn't think that there was any reason for a delay. So they are anticipating that there'll be some action in Pennsylvania on Monday. Yeah, there have been various court challenges trying to throw votes from Pennsylvania out, delay things, but none of them have proven successful. I think there's still a decision coming from a federal district court in Pennsylvania. This was the case that was being argued the other day by Rudy Giuliani. Uh, no decision has been issued there yet, but that court has also never issued any stay of any election counting that's been going on. And I believe there are decisions due from that court today. Yesterday, a, uh, a Pennsylvania state court in Bucks County uh, dismissed a suit from, uh, from the Trump people. Yeah. So th there's really almost nothing in the way of any sort of obstacle that would prevent Pennsylvania from completing its count and certifying its, its election. Mm -hmm. I think the Pennsylvania case yesterday was interesting. That's one where there was a press conference afterwards with um, Rudy Giuliani with his hair dye running down his face. And uh, Jenna Ellis of the Trump campaign was also speaking. One of the things that came up in that um, in that discussion was Ellis saying to the press, you know, your questions are fundamentally flawed when you're asking, where's the evidence? You clearly don't understand the legal process. But in fact, we think that probably Ms. Ellis doesn't understand the legal process. So here's what has to happen when you're challenging something like election results. First of all, you need to get into court fast. And I would say that they haven't been as quick as they probably should have been. But then you're really asking the, the court to intervene somehow and stop something. You're asking them for an injunction. Stop this thing from happening. And here's why. And it's the here's why that requires some evidence. You have to show the court, prove to the court that you are likely to succeed in your case. The evidence supports you. The law supports you. You are going to win. And that justifies the court in putting an immediate slap down in place and stopping things from moving forward. Without that evidence and the legal support of having the legal theory, you can't get a court to stop time. I mean, that's really it. You're, you're stopping time from moving forward. And you can only do that in very specific cases. And um, in the Trump lawsuits, they have said they have all of this evidence but they really haven't shown any of it. In the cases uh, where they have shown some evidence, they've had affidavits by people who are, um, you know, vote monitors or observers, and they're alleging things like, you know, a, I saw this in, in the Pennsylvania lawsuits, a van drove up that night and it was supposed to be delivering food for us, but it wasn't really big enough to have food. So I suspect it had something else in it. I don't know what it is. They wouldn't let me look in the van, but I think it was probably a bunch of illegal votes. Well, that is not evidence. That is nothing. And that's been the problem all along with these lawsuits is they're, they're big on hype 
and um, alleging all kinds of things, but they haven't done anything to prove anything. In a way, there's a bit of an irony here, because on the one hand, you've got Trump tweeting relentlessly about fraud in the election and, and the rest of it. And yet at the same time, as, as the process has played itself out, he has actually turned this into the most scrutinized presidential election probably of all time. And what we've seen time after time and state after state is that there are, have been no irregularities that, that would lead to any kind of legal change in the outcome of the election. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about it and think about how we vote, think about if you're, if you're our age, you might think back to when you used to go in Washington to vote in person. And I can remember thinking back to when I first voted in California, you know, you would go to the polling place and there would be a big book. You'd have to look up your, find your name, find your address, and you had to sign it with your signature right then in front of people. And only then would they hand you your ballot and then you could go vote. Yeah. We, in New York, uh, we didn't have paper ballots. We had, uh, voting booths, which if you're a Catholic, were, were a bit like going into the confessional because you would go in and you'd, you'd turn a lever and the curtain would, would draw across the back of it. So you were in this booth you know, completely alone. And then you'd, you'd manually press down buttons for the candidates you wanted to, uh, to vote for. Do you know what, what happened with that, you know, with the buttons, was it a recording something electronically or was it doing no, a punch it, card? It, it, was, it, was, it was purely a manual count. You, you know, I think you actually needed the machines when you did your count because you would count by machine. Hmm. Yeah, that's different. But now even in now, Washington. The last time I voted that way was like sometime before ago. 1980. Yeah, I imagine it's changed somewhat. <laughs> sure, then. it's changed somewhat since then. But you know, if you think of in our state in Washington, where we vote by mail, the process is you know you fill out your ballots very carefully. They've got very clear instructions, and then you put it into the secrecy envelope, and you put it into the big envelope, and you sign the outside. When those ballots come to your local county elections office, the county auditor, they'll run them through. A, I think they run them through a machine to check the signatures because they have your signature on file. So they're checking the signature on the envelope against what they have on file. And they toss into the take a second look pile, anything that doesn't match up. So you may have people whose ballots are are not yet being processed because they forgot to sign it or the signature doesn't look like the signature that's on file. That's fairly common, especially for older voters. As they get older, their signatures may change. Um, And those votes, then people can, um, can clean them up later. You know, people can check and see what ballots have been received and what the status of those ballots are. You can go to the election office and you can you know, sign them, show your identification and put your ballot into the active pool again. But it's a, it's an involved process. So, you know, if you try to think through, how would I be able to cheat at this? I can understand, and we have had instances, even in Washington, of people who have received a ballot for a family member who's passed away recently, and they decide wrongfully, illegally, that they're going to fill out that person's ballot and vote for them anyway. Uh, When we had the big, um, 
election controversy over Chris Gregoire being elected governor, there were some votes at issue. Well, one of the votes was a man who said his wife, who had passed away, had always hated Chris Gregoire. And so he felt that it was important to her memory that he vote against Chris Gregoire and for Dino Rossi. But these are small numbers of problems. These are like, you know, less than 10, probably less than 20. So where you have uh, elections even in counties where the vote difference is in the thousands of, of votes or in states where it's the tens of thousands of votes, these little here and there things that might happen don't have any significance. Yeah, the, the statistical probability of having an election like that Gregoire election where I think that the plurality came down to something like... Less 200? Than, yeah, about 200 votes. Yeah. Um, that almost never happens. Mm-hmm. And certainly it's not happening in statewide elections. We, ha- we haven't seen anything like that not in statewide elections, no. And I should say hers was a statewide election, so that was hugely anomalous. But if you look at like the Biden and Trump vote tallies, even in states that are somewhat close, we're looking at 20,000, 70,000 differences like that. We're, we're into five figures, which typically recounts and then other attempts to rectify the vote have have never made a change in in results where the results are that many. Mm-hmm. So this is why too you may see some news articles that are also talking about um, the math. And for example, in the uh, there's a post on the election law blog says math mistake in the latest Trump campaign Pennsylvania filing. And it says uh, there's a simple mathematical confusion in this filing. The filing says instantly, if discovery is granted prior to the hearing, plaintiffs will examine these envelopes to determine the percentage of mail ballots that were illegally counted, of which Democratic candidate Joseph Biden won approximately 75 percent and President Trump 25 percent a 50% margin for Biden. That is not a 50% margin for Biden. It is a 50 percentage point margin. In fact, Biden received three times more of the absentee vote than did Trump. The difference between percentages and percentage points is often very large, as this example illustrates. So this is the challenge the Trump campaign faces is, first, they've got to have proof, real proof of real fraud. Second, it has to be of enough significance that it would change the outcome of the election because even if they were even if they were successful in coming in and saying we have proof that these ballots were imp- were false or were improperly um, voted and those ballots were canceled if it doesn't change the outcome of the election the election continues forward and is certified so after pennsylvania we also have Michigan. Michigan also certifies on November 23rd. So that's on Monday. Um, what is supposed to happen on Monday is that the Board of State Canvassers is uh, scheduled to meet and they will certify the election results for the state. Uh, the governor then uh, takes the results of the Board of State Canvassers and certifies the election. So here's what's going on in Michigan. Uh, Trump has invited two Michigan Republican lawmakers to meet him today at the White House. And uh, the, the intent, everyone assumes, is to try to block the certification, either to block the 
board of the state canvassers from meeting or certifying or taking some other action to um, move away from the will of the voters. Now, if the board of canvassers for some reason on Monday is not able to meet and does not certify the results of the election, the governor can certify a slate of electors if the legislature will not. And then it goes to Congress and Congress decides which slate that it's going to pick. The governor in Michigan, as most of you know, is a um, Democrat, and she has been targeted by Trump supporters with all kinds of threats of um, everything from bodily harm to kidnapping and death. So she is not likely to be trying to turn the election in Trump's favor. Yeah, and the, the Michigan thing is kind of interesting because you know Biden is up in Michigan by a total of uh, over 157,000 votes. Uh, most of that is in the metro Detroit area. And so most of the Trump campaign's attempts to impugn the Michigan vote have been to somehow or other try to disregard Wayne County, Michigan, because when you factor it out, if you just go by the results of the rest of the state, Trump would have taken the state, but they haven't been able to find there's any sort of irregularity that would give any legal basis for throwing out the Detroit vote. Yeah, there is some um, shenanigans going on in Detroit on the uh, election law blog today, which is by uh, Professor Rick Hazen, who's at uh, UC Irvine Law School. He has a segment from the Detroit News and it reports uh, on a Thursday meeting, so a meeting yesterday. So it says, in a Thursday meeting punctuated by outbursts from attendees, a wheelbarrow full of letters and repeated calls to order, two county clerks recommended a raft of election changes during the first testimony taken in a legislative inquiry into the November 3rd election. The three-hour joint oversight committee hearing was the first to take testimony on Michigan's November 3rd election, where unproven allegations of election fraud and ballot irregularities prompted Michigan lawmakers to subpoena voting-related records from the state to examine the issues. Some attendees seeking to, quote, stop the steal, attended the meeting grumbling about some responses and laughing when witnesses said dead voters did not vote in Michigan. Democratic lawmakers questioned the value of the hearing. Democratic Representative Cynthia Johnson of Detroit yelled at the end of the meeting when she didn't get a question in and criticized the GOP-led legislature for holding such a meeting during a pandemic. So what's going on in Michigan is interesting. I mean, again, they don't have the evidence. And even if there was some evidence of irregularity, as we've said, uh, it's, it's not significant and wouldn't change the outcome of the election. But it's a very contentious situation in Michigan. You have the um, legislature in the control of the Republicans. The governor is a Democrat. You have significant cities with large black populations that voted. They got out the vote, much like Georgia, and voted overwhelmingly for Biden. And now you have the Trump campaign literally saying, although I don't think they knew what they were saying, they're literally saying, yeah, but if you don't count the black votes, we would win. Be kind of difficult to make that one work. Well, it's, it's interesting because you usually get people who are so um, obvious about their politics. It's like, you know, we would really like to have some of our citizens not be able to vote. 
And we're very resentful of the fact that when they vote, we don't win. Now, they could change their policies to make themselves more attractive to these voters, but no, they would rather find some way to disenfranchise them. Now, I think that it's worth taking a step back and, and emphasizing, even if something happened to factor the, the Michigan result out of the electoral college vote, Biden still wins. I mean, he's up at about 306 electoral votes. Uh, Michigan has 16. So even if we segregate out the Michigan result and we just go with the results in the rest of the country, that's still 290 electoral votes, which is 20 more than needed to elect the president. I mean, Trump really needs to read out a good number of states in order to have any hope of, of going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the likelihood of that happening is just nil. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, in the states that are in contention, Nevada has six electoral votes. Arizona has 11. Wisconsin, 10. Michigan, 16. Pennsylvania is 20. Georgia is 16. Yeah. Well, and that's why he, he's picking on the ones he thinks he might have a better chance of. So after the certification for Pennsylvania and Michigan on Monday, the 23rd. On Tuesday, the 24th, we have Nevada and North Carolina certifying North and Minnesota. No questions really about Minnesota or North Carolina, but as for Nevada, um, there is a Trump lawsuit. The Trump lawsuit just says, well, Trump actually won. And it, it doesn't have any, there's no base for that. Um, and you also have conservative groups in Nevada trying to nullify the election results. Um, what happens on Tuesday is the state Supreme Court will meet to certify the results and then will send those results to the governor to confirm the election results. And I haven't been able to find anything about what the issues are in the Nevada um, litigation other than that. Have you seen anything? No, it, it's actually been very interesting in the last couple of days, um, the press is sort of losing interest in covering the election lawsuits just because they have so uniformly gone against the Trump campaign where the Trump campaign has been filing them or the Republican Party where the Republicans have been filing them. And so there's been less and less and less coverage of this stuff. I mean, the most recent recap that I was able to find was from AP that was posted yesterday morning, very early. And since then we've had you know three more um, lawsuits that have been dismissed. It's not getting the amount of coverage it used to get because it's getting pushed out of, you know, off the stage by all this talk of inviting Michigan legislators to the White House and, you know, Rudy Giuliani's weird theatrics various press conferences, not all of them held outside landscaping firms. I know. There was a meme yesterday on social media that showed, you know, really Rudy Giuliani's month of November, a clip from Borat, you know, where he's, you know, lying down on the bed with his hand in his pants, the press conference in front of the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. With and the then sex offender. With the sex <laughs> offender. And then the final press conference where he looks like a, you know, a, a wax figure with, you know, dye running down the sides of his head. Not a good month for Rudy Giuliani, although reports are he was uh, to be paid $20,000 a day by the Trump campaign. So yeah, the report was that's what he wanted. Yeah. What I had also read was that he said, once this is all over, 
the campaign and I will come to an agreement about an amount, which means he's basically working for free. Um, so we have Nevada on Tuesday, Saturday, November 28th, Ohio certifies. We don't anticipate any problems with that. Monday, November 30th, three more states, Iowa, Nebraska, and Arizona. No issues really with Iowa or Nebraska, but Arizona. Republicans have asked the court to postpone certification in Maricopa County. Now that's by far the largest county that's in Arizona, Phoenix. and that's Phoenix, yes. Um, but the judge rejected that case yesterday. The Secretary of State, who is a Democrat, is expected to certify the election results in favor of Joe Biden by Monday, November 30th. Uh, Tuesday, December 1st, Wisconsin certifies, but I haven't seen, there was some talk about Wisconsin for a while, but I haven't seen anything recently. Uh, the only thing that's really going on in Wisconsin is that the Trump campaign has requested a partial recount of state results, recount in three different counties. Uh, in order to do that, they had to pony up $3 million, which they did. And those recounts are, those three county recounts are underway right now. Okay. I think that's the only significant thing that's really going on in, uh, in Wisconsin. Okay. I, I'm sure there's probably a lawsuit somewhere. Yeah. That's working its way toward being dismissed. Mm -hmm. It may be they're trying the, you know, the first recount just to see if anything pops for them, if there's any difference in the recount. Yeah. Uh, by Tuesday, December 8th, all states yep. um, should be certified. And once they are certified, then the legal challenges should pretty much come to an end. Yep. Um, federal law says the governor of each state must compile the certified results and send them to Congress, along with the names of the state's electoral college delegates. Then, about a week later, on Monday, December 14th, the electors will meet in their respective states, so they don't have to travel, and they will cast their votes. On Wednesday, January 6th, Congress meets, counts, and certifies the votes cast by the Electoral College. So December 8th should be a date when we see a little bit less craziness, maybe. Yeah, um, I would suspect that what you're going to start seeing after the 8th is going to be a, a pivot by the Trump campaign to start to lobby individual state electors to change their votes. Mm -hmm. um, the likelihood of, of anything, of any kind of significance happening there is, is you know, virtually zero. Um, electoral votes are, are controlled by Partly by tradition, partly by law, partly by, you know, a kind of custom. Electors are chosen by the party. They're not chosen by the state. And so electors tend to be loyal to the candidate who won the state's popular vote. I think we'll stop there, take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about electors, the Electoral College, how they vote what is a faithless elector and why we expect to see fewer of those this time. And then we can begin speculating wildly about what's really going on, uh, what might happen in the future and why is all of this happening? So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. 
This is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. Words mean things. That's what Pacific Lutheran University challenges me and you to think about in our everyday speech. When I speak to you or a guest over the podcast, the words I choose have impact, either positive or negative. Words have history, and when we choose to use them, we have to own their meaning and their effect on the people listening. My language, my choice. PLU is asking us to go deep on words like anti-racist or decolonize, and to think about what those words truly mean. Then, once you understand them, let's talk about how you can put words into action. What can you do to live up to the word anti-racist? How can you decolonize your entertainment or even how you introduce yourself? These are big questions. To get ideas on how to answer them and to find questions about other important words, visit plu.edu slash words mean things to learn more. My sincere thanks to Pacific Lutheran University for sponsoring Channel 253 and for doing exactly what universities should be doing right now with this campaign. Okay, we're back. Hey, before we get back into talking about electors and faithless electors, let me talk to you about Channel 253. If you are not a member, we hope you will join us. It is $4 a month or $40 a year. You get um, really excellent content, if I do say so myself, on our podcast, plus access to some member goodies. One of those is Doug's excellent podcast, Off the Record. Um, plus, we're always looking for new ways that we can involve our members in um how we do our shows and make our decisions and how they can give us feedback. So I strongly suggest that you consider joining channel 253. Now let's go back on. And when we were off, uh, Joe, go ahead. Give me a really fast update. This is Friday, the 20th at 1130. New York Times reports Georgia is still certifying vote for Biden after premature announcement. So Georgia remains ongoing as of the moment that we're speaking. I don't have really an idea of what it means to certify it. You know, do they have to go to the, go make a presentation at their legislature? I thought they just, you know, signed something. I think it's just going through the results county by county that gets sent up Mm. by the county election officials. Okay. Well, we were talking when we were off when we were uh, off the air about you know how it's kind of been difficult following all of this. As Joe said, it's kind of like a whack-a-mole where you sort of think, "Oh, something's up in Arizona. What's that?" And you figure it out, and then it goes away and dies down. And you and you think, "All right, well, maybe that's taken care of," but it may not be. It might jump back up and get you again. Yeah, I, I think there's there's been there's a lot of coverage of things as they happen. There's less coverage of how things get resolved. So it's difficult to find out, you know, what happened with the lawsuit in Michigan that was filed in, say, Wayne County. It gets a lot of coverage on the day it's filed, and then it just fades from view as other things come up and get all the attention. Mm -hmm. So we're now at the point where we're looking at electors. So the results have been certified. And we anticipate that the results will follow the election results we've seen all along, which would mean that 306 of those electoral votes go to Joe Biden and he wins. But is there a way for the Trump campaign to do some um, 
damage here? I mean, could they try to get electors who are supposed to vote for Biden to vote for Trump? You know, there's certainly some possibility of that. I think before you get into that, it's probably worth just a, a really brief overview of what states, how states choose electors and how those electors are apportioned. In all but two states, electors are a winner-take-all proposition. So if Democrat Biden wins California, Democrat Biden gets all 55 of California's electoral votes. Those 55 electors are chosen by the state Democratic Party. If Trump had won, it would have been 55 Republican electors. That makes it very difficult to really turn an elector. These are party faithful. Um, in addition to that, 32 states plus the District of Columbia, by my count, have laws on the books that bind electors to vote in accord with the state's popular vote. Uh, Washington is one of those states. Different states prescribe different penalties for what we call faithless electors, someone who's required to vote for, say, Biden, and then casts a vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, if you take a look at the list of states that have those votes, that have those laws on the books, you'll find Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, um, Georgia. No, Georgia's not on the list, and Pennsylvania's not on the list of the states that are in heavy contention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, state law makes it difficult to turn an elector. Political loyalties make it difficult to turn an elector. Especially in this, you know, highly polarized election, right. it's difficult to see how you're going to get a Democratic elector to turn and vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. And even if you were to get a few, Trump needs dozens. Right. You wouldn't get, you know... 36. No. Yeah. So when we talk about a faithless elector, it's very interesting to me because in Washington state, we had faithless electors four years ago. What had happened was our state was bound to or had voted for Hillary Clinton. So you would expect that our electors would have put in votes for Hillary Clinton. But in fact, several of them did not. I know it was at least three. It might have been four. It was uh, three. And they voted for... Uh, no, it, it was more than three. It was, excuse me, it was four. Uh, okay. Three electors, instead of voting for Hillary Clinton, as they were required to do, three of them voted for Colin Powell. Um, one of them voted for Faith Spotted Eagle. So those were the four faithless electors from Washington. Yeah. Uh, in that election, in the electoral college overall, there were seven faithless electors which is an unusually high number for an electoral college vote count. Yeah, it was strange. I don't know if it was anti-Hillary feeling for our state faithless electors. I think it was partly, or if it was, you know, I mean, they knew Trump had won. So I think they felt free to do whatever the spirit moved them to do, whatever they decided, you know, was the best thing to signify. But I'll tell you, I can remember, I mean, still actually pretty annoyed about it. I was really angry. I thought, you know, that was my vote. 
those were my votes that I made in good faith that you've just taken away from me and given to someone. I mean, I know the person I vote for isn't going to win. I get that. But at least don't take away my vote. Yeah, it, it's very difficult because uh, the Electoral College in a lot of ways does disenfranchise you know, people from the popular vote, even when everything works the way the Electoral College is supposed to work. Right. Um, you know, the results in the Electoral College don't represent the popular vote nationwide. Mm-hmm. And there have been various attempts to, you know, float bills to change that. Since it's constitutional, we're having we're talking about really needing a constitutional amendment, which is highly unlikely, because that would require a ratification of I think it's three quarters of the states, uh, and smaller states who do quite well with the electoral college aren't going to go along with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we don't expect there to be any. Um, Surprises. I don't know. We're talking about you know the October surprises, November surprises. That would be a December surprise, which we're not expecting. Um, but it is worth noting that Trump has invited two top Republican legislators to meet with him at the White House today, and speculation is that clearly it's to try to do some sort of mischief uh, to thwart the vote coming out of Michigan. You know, interestingly, on the topic of faithless electors, the 2016 election um, did generate some litigation that recently went to the Supreme Court, which found that state laws that bind electors to vote in accord with the state's popular vote are constitutional. And Washington state was one of the states who involved in that suit. I believe that um, the penalties for being a faithless elector is, or at least it was in 2016, a $1,000 fine. Yeah, and different states have different fines. Uh, in some states, it's a civil penalty. In some states, it's uh, South Carolina, it's a minor criminal offense. In New Mexico, it's a fourth-degree felony. Mm. Uh, other states, like Michigan, where a candidate fails to vote as required, that candidate, that elector is deemed to have resigned and a replacement is then appointed. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens on that. All of the sort of big brains on election law think that there's very little chance, in fact, like zero chance, that that strategy of trying to thwart the electors after you failed and the actual vote totals have been certified. Nobody thinks that that's a likely successful a strategy. But this is this is really the problem that the Trump campaign faces. As each week goes by, the options for trying to challenge the vote really narrow significantly. You know, court challenges fail, so now the attempt is to try to get state legislators, state legislatures, to throw out the result and have those legislatures, where they're Republican controlled, vote their own slate of electors. I mean, that's highly unlikely. And by December 8th, that's all over. Mm-hmm. But why then do you think he's doing it? Well, you know, part of it with him is always theater. It gives him a narrative. It gives him a narrative that he can walk away from his time in the White House with and, and continue down the line. The man who was cheated out of the election by some sort of unnamed fraud. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that there's, there's a certain value to him in that sort of narrative commercially as he leaves the White House. Um, it, it probably gets him on a certain number of talk shows. It may get him some sort of media platform all his own, which he seems to want, whether it's a show someplace or whether it's his own network. And that's kind of difficult to see how that would would possibly work given his track record in running things. But, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's some thought that, that he's looking at these sorts of possibilities. Now, one problem is, you know, you flip it another way, uh, there's also been talk that he will shortly announce his candidacy for the White House in 2024 and open a campaign that significantly limits his options in, in terms of television exposure. I mean, back in 2015, when, uh, when he announced he was running for president, NBC yanked The Apprentice off the air. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting calculation. I agree. He seems to believe that there's some value to him in not being perceived as uh, someone who lost re-election and was a one-term president. For some reason, I think he, he thinks that it's better for him to look like the victim of fraud, someone who has been, had something stolen from him, taken away, and that was contrary to the will of the American people. He seems to be particularly susceptible to this sort of, you know, hurt feeling. It's apparently bothered him for the last four years that his presidency has by some people been viewed as illegitimate since he, he lost the popular vote in 2016, mm -hmm. but won the electoral vote. And he's always somehow tried to rationalize that discrepancy away. Yeah, there was something on, um, let's see. Yeah, something on CNN. Um, that apparently uh, Trump told an ally that he knows he lost, but that he is delaying the transition process and is aggressively trying to sow doubt about the election results in order to get back at Democrats for questioning the legitimacy of his own election in 2016, especially with the Russia investigation. So, so there are, you know, hurt feelings um, at issue, but consider the harm he's doing. And, and I'll say first, let's speculate. Suppose he was able to overturn the election results from, let's say, Michigan and Pennsylvania. And if he did so largely by trying to disenfranchise the black voters in Detroit and the voters in um, Philadelphia, do you think people would just say, oh, well, that's the way it goes? I don't. No, I, I think you'd, you'd probably have, you know, pretty much people in the streets nationwide um, complaining, protesting. Perhaps you know, armed are, people in the streets. Yeah. Um, but again, the likelihood of it happening is, is just nil. I know, but it's, it's really, it's, this is what's interesting to me. I mean, I know now after four years, so four years ago when he was elected, I was devastated, so disappointed. But I thought, well, he's not going to want to be a failure at this. He's going to do his, he's going <laughs> to, that's so ridiculous now. He's going to do his best 
to try to do a good job. He will bring in people who can advise him. He will try to do a good job. Wrong. Wrong. He has never tried to do a good job. He's never been anything more than he's always been, which is, you know, a liar and a fraud and a fake. But does he really want us to end up shooting each other in the street over him? Well, I really don't think you can underestimate the degree by which he doesn't care about the harm that he's inflicting here. He doesn't care that he's undermining democratic norms. He doesn't care that should his efforts prove successful, he's going to disenfranchise people who voted. He doesn't care. He's not interested in a peaceful turnover of the presidency. He's working to the degree that he can to undermine the potential success of the incoming administration. And the longer he can delay the transition, the likelier it is that the Biden administration isn't going to be up and running and functioning in some, you know, normal, efficient manner for months after inauguration. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care. I mean, he hasn't cared for, you know, the better part of a year now about the whole COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care. You know, it's about him. And let's be honest, he is very good at turning the discussion into something about him. Here we are several weeks after an election that Biden won. And what's all the news about? It's all about Trump. Every day you look at the headlines and it's Trump, 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 Trump. He's very good Mm -hmm. at sucking all the air out of the room. Well, and I would say, uh, we were talking about this last night, that, you know, first of all, the Republicans... Don't be don't seem to be able to really effectively stand up to him. You know, I think their calculation is I don't think they like him at all, but I think their calculation is he uh, has drawn a huge number of people to the party. And if I turn on him, are those people going to turn on me? Well, and, and take a look at the recent election results. Not very good for Trump, but pretty good for the Republicans. Right. Uh, we'll have to wait until the Georgia Senate runoffs take place in January to know who who takes the Senate. Uh, but the Republicans gained, what, five seats in the House? Yeah. So it's been very good for the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Trump got the vote out. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't do him any good. Right. Or at least not enough, because I think the Democrats were really, really focused right. on the presidential race. And the demographics in in different places are changing. Yes. Maricopa County in uh, Arizona, Atlanta, Mm -hmm. you know, places that have been staunchly Republican in the past have been turning. Mm -hmm. So the Republicans are sort of paralyzed, I would say, by self-interest and not sort of knowing where to turn what to do right now. We're starting to see, you know, one by one, you know, today it was Lamar Alexander saying, I think you should concede. Well, he's not in office anymore. That's easy for him to say. Yeah. Well, and they're not exactly reprimands. They're sort of like, <clears throat> um, by the way, really, you should probably, you know, it's it's time now. They're playing a game. They're sitting by the sidelines waiting, knowing that the process will just shut Trump down and shut all of his various attempts to turn the election down. So my next question why are the Democrats not raising hell over this? 
take a better mind than mine to answer that one. I don't know. Um, they have been peculiarly ineffective in dealing with him for four years. Yeah. What, what is it? I mean, I, I can think of no one who would be easier to say, you are just, you know, a horrible, terrible person, and we're going to do everything we can to thwart your every move. And it works. But they haven't. They haven't no, I, it, it yeah, works yeah. for Trump to thwart it them. It does. It does. Well, as we were talking about last night, what does the news media do? I mean, they're sort of standing there holding their hands, not quite sure what to say either, again, for, as they have been for four years. They've never really had to deal with somebody who just stands up at a podium and lies. Right. Um, and it's very difficult to cover the lies because just reporting them. Makes them. It gives them, yes, a, a sort of quasi-factual nature. Mm -hmm. And he's perfected the way of doing this. He's been doing it for years. Let's go back to the Obama years with all the birther stuff. Right. You know, everybody knew that Obama was born in Hawaii, but he managed to stretch this whole thing out of, is he even an American for, you know, just about a year. Mm -hmm. And yet nobody ever questioned him about his, you know, his identity. His mother was from Scotland. Yeah. I know. Oh, it makes me furious. Um, but the, the press doesn't really know how to cover him. I think, and we were talking about this last night, it, I had a case... Um, long time ago in the early 90s where it was with a, um, a DSHS employee who'd been fired and he had some he had some issues but really what he was was he was um, he would just do anything he would regularly he'd fax me letters every single day saying you know no one would blame the kind and gentle Mr. X he'd use his name but I won't if he were to bring his AK you know 47 rifle into the DSHS headquarters and shoot everyone until the hallways ran red with blood and so you get this in a case and it's like well what am I supposed to do with this? You know, and so I would let DSA, I'd let the client know, well, here, you know, I mean, it's on daily. I'd let the hearings tribunal, it was, it was the personnel appeals board, you know, okay, this came in today. I would call the mental health um, folks up in Seattle to say, could you do a little house visit on him? Because he's threatening again to bring a gun in and kill everyone. And the mental health people finally told me, we please stop calling us. I mean, that's not what he's doing. He's just, he's just sitting at his computer writing stuff. Um, but our, it, it was interesting because the system had no capacity for dealing with someone who wasn't going to play by any of the rules. And I think that's what we see with Trump. It's like he, he doesn't tell the truth. Most people tell the truth. Most people are not comfortable just out and out lying everywhere. He lies very comfortably, routinely, all the time. He doesn't give, he doesn't, couldn't care less. He even contradicts himself. Right. Um, but the press hasn't been very good at knowing how to deal with it because there is this sense in which by reporting what he says, you give it a kind of legitimacy, mm -hmm. which, you know, then you have to sort of combat later in the article by pointing out that there's no factual basis for this claim or that claim. And then you run op-ed pieces by people who try to do a summation of all the lies but, you know, most people, if you're getting your news from TV, all they get is the soundbite of Donald Trump saying there's fraud here, there's fraud there, COVID's going to disappear, you know, and all the rest of it. And, you know, really, it legitimizes the lies. Yeah. Now, you know, the same thing at the same time, 
I don't know why TV networks need to invite Trump surrogates on talk shows where they do nothing but lie. And then afterward, you know, the, the, the fact checkers, you know, spit out a whole list of things and the, the anchor has to sit there saying, well, this was a lie and that was a lie and the other was a lie. I mean, if people are just going to come on your show and tell lies, don't book them again. Right. I agree. Well, so then the, the next question is always like, OK, he's completely destroyed all of our sort of norms. And I would say not just Democratic norms. I mean, this is like at the end of the Little League baseball game. You know, you have all the little players shake each other's hands, say, good game, good game, good game. Not Trump. Trump is one who he would, you know, break a bat, spit in the face of the other kid and then, you know, run off and do something else. I mean, you know, it's not just the Democratic. It's like all, a lot of our norms of sort of how we engage with each other as adults are things that he's just saying, screw it. I'm not doing it. So what do we have after this? In a lot of ways, I think all we have after this is the goodwill of people who might hold the office later. Mm -hmm. Because what you're talking about, these norms and conventions, in a very real sense, since they've been flouted during this administration, they, they don't exist anymore unless subsequent office holders choose to recognize them. And if they don't, then I don't know. But what we've seen in the last four years is that the line between what's possible and what's not possible has really been radically redrawn. Yeah. And we're going to be dealing with that for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think so, too. It's a real watershed event. Oh, yeah. The Trump presidency. There's no, you know, there's no putting Humpty Dumpty just back together. Mm -hmm. And thinking that we just, you know, rewind and go back to 2016. Well, I would say it's sort of like, and when I think of it is, I think it's probably the last, I'll say the last six years, because it was the last two years of Obama where Mitch McConnell figured out, I can really screw you over big time with, you know, judicial appointments and the Supreme Court. And that's, that's another instance of Republicans being good at this kind of politics. Well, the Democrats are just terrible. Yeah. Still terrible. Yeah. Still terrible. So I guess as a wrap up, we'll say states are certifying. We expect they will certify. We expect that the results will comport with the election results that we saw soon after November 3rd and that Joe Biden is the successful candidate. Um, we will see by December 8th. That should be the end of lawsuits challenging the certification of the elections. We'll see if there's some goofiness with the electors between December 8th and December 14th. But all of the people who are deeply knowledgeable about how the federal law works and how these processes work do not think that there is a path for Trump to overturn the election results either in court or through messing with the electors. I hope that's true because I really do think that should something go wrong and should he find a way to thwart the election, I just don't see how he can since the separation is so big. I mean, if it was one state, it would be a much different story. Yeah, but it, with this many states, I just don't think it can be done. You know, it's not the landslide that we had been told was coming by pollsters, but at the same time, 
it's not a, a squeaker of an election either. I think no. by the current count, popular vote, Biden's ahead by 6 million, and that's expected to grow by the time uh, all states have certified. Yeah. So we may see the end of the Trump administration. That's what we know right now. As of 11.55 a.m., November 20th, 2020, and if something else changes, well, we may come back and talk about it again. Um, Joe, I love talking with you every day. So thank you very much for doing this show with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. If you're listening and you have ideas for other episodes, go ahead and get in touch. You can send me an email, uh, truetacoma at gmail.com, or get a hold of me on Twitter at true underscore Tacoma. That's it for us today. Thank you very much. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.